Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 96, Dev Random. We had a lot of little things that none of them added up to a long show. That's what we right. do these Dev Random shows for. So uh, how you doing, Jay? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing great. The um, We have a few projects we've been working on. Jay's got this really cool Ansible project that he's going to do a deep dive into. I have a few more coming ones, uh, including <laughs> since last show, I did one on Fresh RSS. So, hey, check that out. Uh, but yep. we have some bigger projects coming in the future that, of course, will also be things we dive into on topics on here. But in the short term, we have all this little stuff that needs to be talked about. <laughs> and uh, so that's what we're going to do today. But first, we need to thank a sponsor, and that's going to be the Akamai Cloud Friends. And there's going to be some announcements. Me and Jay did some uh, work with them in uh, on, on some book stuff that's yep. going to be published. We'll get the details for you guys later on that. Uh, that's going to be up and coming. We'll probably know by next week and have some of that sorted out. But they have been a great sponsor of the show. They've been great to work with. If you are listening to this and you downloaded it from our website, you downloaded it from one of the Akamai uh, systems. We host the entire the homelab.show on there. And uh, they've been a sponsor since the beginning. It's a great place to run the projects we talk about on here. If you need something that's not necessarily in your home lab, but maybe needs to run in the cloud, choose the Akamai Cloud for that, also known as Linode. So yes, they're the same company. <laughs> We're still working out those details as, they, uh, as the name change happens, but they're still a good sponsor. They're still a good platform, and we thank them for their support. Yep, and other news related to that, they're going to be starting the transition of changing their YouTube channel over to the Akamai branding as well. So that oh, cool. they're going to be announcing something um, pretty cool, and I may or may not be part of that announcement. I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, I, it's funny because I was actually Googling. Uh, I couldn't remember how to do something in Git and because I don't use Git enough. I'm getting better at it, though. You should, <laughs> well, you should get good at it then. One day I'll get good at it. Uh, but I, I love that the first result was uh, Jay's helpful video on how to get started with that. So Jay's got some great videos if you need to get better at Git. <laughs> get good at Git. Get good at Git. All right. Um. I think someone said, oh, someone's talking about I have a typo in a video. That's fine. I'll get the typos yeah. fixed later in one of my other videos. <laughs> yeah, I, I have that problem. Um, like, I, I don't think people realize just how much time we spend on metadata. Like, we have conversations about TubeBuddy and how we can, like, mass replace text across hundreds of videos. And, um, you know, typos still kind of sneak in from time to time. I'm a writer, and I still have typos in my stuff, so... Yeah, yep. but thank you. I, I really appreciate it when people let us know about this because it is true. Like in my case, I mean, yeah. out of nowhere myself. So we should we should have a bug bounty program for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I just we we have feedback form or or something specific for you know typos or glitches or whatever. Like I in the show notes is this, and I forget to put it like all the time. And someone has to say, "Hey, you said there's a link in the show notes," and yeah, I need to anyway. No, it's problem. real. Let's start with feedback at the homelab.show. Uh, We've had two questions and we kind of want to talk about this as a topic. Uh, one of them was, you know, asking about NextCloud being a little more complicated and harder to use, but not as many features as Google. And yes, welcome to the world of open source. NextCloud is kind of targeted loosely at replacing some of the cloud storage things, but you're right. It's not there in terms of you can't compare a company that, well, NextCloud is a company as well, but they're just not near the scale 
scale and scope of Google. So uh, you can't expect feature parity. I'll just throw that out there. Um, yeah. So if I, I think this is probably coming from someone who's a little bit newer into the open source world and looking at what available options there are. There's some great options and the software is getting a lot better, but no, we're just not there yet. Sorry. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. it's going to take time. But also in, in addition to that, I, I think some of that is intentional because um, you know, for example, if you have Google Workspace, you have Gmail. We have Gmail with a Google account even without that. But that's that's a part of it. You don't decide which email service you want to use with Google Workspace. You get that whether you want to use it or not. With NextCloud, you can have email built in as well, but they're not an email server. And I think that's intentional because then you can slot in whatever email service you want for the backend service and then expose it to the front. And sometimes I wonder if some of that's intentional because when it comes to um, home lab people and you know IT administrators, they generally want to um, slot in their own thing for each individual service. So I think being modular is kind of the goal. And that's something with open source you have to understand too because... Um, a lot of times it's about helping you build your solution, not building a solution for you to use, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and a quick Google search for just scaling comparison. Uh, quick Google search yields. I didn't validate this for accuracy, but NextCloud brings in a few million dollars a year. And Google did $279 billion. So they have a few more dollars to throw at that little project. So <laughs> and NextCloud has less of a graveyard, just saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That way less of a graveyard. That's a, because we don't know what Google's going to keep and what they're not. It's, that's what Google graveyards for. But a friend of our show, uh, Veronica from Veronica Explains, has a good point. I agree with this. Um, uh, she said, basically, I don't expect my home built bike to do what a mass transit system can do, and I don't expect Nextcloud to replicate Google. Um, and I think that's important to understand too, because, um, and that kind of goes in with what I was saying. If you build your own solution, you're building your own solution. NextCloud is a component of that. And for example, you might decide not to use the syncing service of NextCloud because maybe you don't want to do that, but you want the other features. Then you might put in a sync thing to facilitate the syncing side of things, um, you know, stripping away the syncing in NextCloud itself. Um, so I think looking at it through that lens is best because that yeah. way you, you know that you can, uh, there's always something else to fill in the blank if there is a blank in NextCloud, but um, maybe we should catch up on NextCloud um, in an episode coming you know, up. That's, really diving into the features of NextCloud is good. You've already got a tutorial on how it works and everything else. So I think there's, yeah, that's definitely a good topic. Yep. The next feedback that I want to bring up, and there's there's a few rabbit holes you can go down because this question comes up a lot. And I'm probably going to order uh, when I'm after the show, maybe during the show, if I got a pause, <laughs> I will, I'm going to order one of those Zima boards because they're pretty cool but the low powered computing topic comes up a lot and right. i know there's a lot of ones that ah, are a little sketchy if you will you can find on alibaba i don't know how to describe them other than they always have some random name uh you buy them from places the the closest they do is some <laughs> some of them get rebranded under a name protect Telly here in the u.s but yep. if you're looking for something that's actually brand name, I want to do some research into this. The Zima board looks interesting too, by the way, because it's x86. So you still have a nice uh, small computer with 
x86 support because as much as we'd love to talk about raspberry pis and jeff gearling did a good job talking about alternatives to the raspberry pi yep. but he also brought up for a couple more watts and we're not talking like a lot but a few more watts going x86 on some of these like mini lenovo's that you can pick up for furbish like the lenovo think centers the little baby ones they make you're talking about something that is supported is in the affordable price range is compact enough and if you spend any time on reddit our home lab you'll see some people i was actually shocked someone built a really clever 3d printed holder for several of those little mini pcs and they built a really small quiet compact mini cluster um that you know doesn't break the bank to purchase and doesn't break the wattage requirements that a lot of people have to build a low out of China. So this is a topic that I think I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into, get my wattage meter out, uh, buy a few of these. I have a few use cases. I know a lot of you would like to hear about it, but um, you know, low wattage computing definitely makes a lot of sense, but check out the Zima board because you can get these on Amazon right now and they're quite affordable. Uh, right now, the Zima 832 board, which I think if I remember right, that's got, um, is it eight gigs of RAM? Is that how that works? Eight gig yeah. RAM and thirty-two. I think that's how they they have a naming schema. That's like eight thirty-two is the, yeah, eight gigs okay. of RAM and thirty-two gigs of storage. And their uh, two sixteen is a two gigs of storage and uh, or two gigs of RAM and sixteen gigs of storage. But either way, the the eight gig, um, thirty-two gig of storage is only one hundred seventy-two dollars. For those wondering, yes, it'll run BF Sense. Yes, it has a PCIe slot. Yes, you can pop in a um, four-port network card in there. there. There's actually another a YouTube channel that did a demo of that. I was like, you know, that's clever. I'd actually messaged them when I first posted about the Zima board running uh, PF Sense because it has the Realtek chips. And I was like, Realtek are not the best. And I actually messaged them. I said, why don't you guys grab one of those four-port Intels? And then they did. And actually, there's a couple write-ups if you Google uh Google Zima board projects and you'll find some, but I want to put this on people's radar. Steve Gibson's talked about it on security. Now it's a, it's a, it's a neat little box that you could do some neat things with um, without breaking the budget. So that definitely, uh, yeah, two guys tech. That's the uh, other channel that had done a video on it. So I just want to throw it out there. It's something I want to actively research and maybe do a deeper dive into because the question comes up is where do we get some of these affordable ones? If you're lucky enough to be by a refurbisher, awesome, but you're not always that lucky or you live in a rural area. So I'll be trying to find things that are easily accessible on eBay or Amazon um, for fast shipping, not as random and reliable. So you can build something that's trustworthy and go, hey, I can build my mini cluster on this and not have to worry about hardware problems. Yeah, I think I want to check that out too. The only reason why I haven't, I, I've had them reach out to me and offer me a review unit like multiple times, but um as we discuss off camera, the reviews on YouTube are very much, you know, deprioritized. So it's like, I want to check it out, but I'll just buy it myself and then yeah. try to find a project for it. I think another thing to consider if you're like me and you run a Raspberry Pi based Kubernetes cluster, um, you know, I go to linuxserver.io for all of my container images because they support ARM, which means it works on Raspberry Pi, but you're still going to have a container every now and then that will not run on the Raspberry Pi because it needs x86. So one use case, and you could supplement your um, Raspberry Pi cluster with a Zima board so you have an x86 node that such containers can be run on if they don't run on the you know rest of the cluster. So you can have that um, edge case covered. And this was an interesting topic uh, that I didn't know about. And Jay was kind of explaining to me is you can incorporate 
ARM and x86 into your Kubernetes cluster, yeah. and then you build the rules out. So it's still a managed singular cluster, if you will, that, all, but it's got a mix of processor types. So you would then tell the services to start on based on their target of support. So I think that's a, that's an interesting way to, to build a project around that. Yeah. You could also have other constraints too, not just uh, CPU. I mean, you could literally say, I only want you to run on, you know, with, with these specs are met, you run on that. I mean, it does that itself where it, it's obviously not going to schedule a container that's going to take two gigs of RAM if only 512 megabytes are free, obviously. But you can uh, supplement that and, and further uh, customize the logic there, which is pretty neat that it allows you to do that. Yeah. So that's uh, definitely going to be a fun topic to dive into and, and do testing yeah. on that. And there is a question I could probably grab real quick because it, sure. um, I, I think that it, it, it's it's a good one actually. Um, any sane uh, blue squadron? Any sane reason? Uh, sorry, blue squadron is the username. I probably should have said that. Yeah. The question is: Any sane reason to move on from one gigabit Ethernet? I don't do any video editing. Um, the thing about that is, I feel like we're hitting, in some some cases, we're hitting a wall with one gigabit. I would say. Another reason to move on from it might be if you uh, copy files back and forth from a file server for whatever reason. Um, if, you, if you're like me and you're impatient, then you probably want 10 gig just because you hate watching uh, progress bars. That's not necessarily <laughs> a good reason to just buy a bunch of stuff. But if you're just, you know, doing, you know, basic things like SSH and uh, whatnot, it's probably not going to be a difference. But if you're copying larger files or if you have a virtualization solution and you want backend storage, I would never recommend one gigabit for your backend storage. You definitely want something um, faster. It, it will be fine up to a point. I used to have shared storage over one gigabit. It was always fine until too many VMs were doing too many things at the same time. And then what you would see is that they will slow each other down and the estimated time will actually be counting up rather than going down, because everyone's running an Ansible job at the same time. I mean, those are some of the things you might run into. But even then, as long as you schedule things to happen one at a time, you can still avoid that. So I think it's not a matter of finding a use for it. It's a matter of looking at the things that drive you crazy in your network and whether or not those things can be solved by increasing your speed. If not, stick with one gigabit. If you think you're running into a, a speed bottleneck, then that would be a consideration. But it is going to be, um, you know, it's not it's not like a few dollars. I mean, you're going to need a switch. You're going to need the network cards. It's it's, yeah. it's a project, so it has to be worth it for your use case and and you know solve a constraint that you might have. Yeah, because I, I have my videos backed up to a TrueNAS server, an older one. I've talked about uh, before in my recent video on how little RAM you can run a TrueNAS server with. It's low powered. It's only mm -hmm. one gig. And I'm fine with that. Now, I am yep. also aware, and this is one of the things you have to be aware from a planning perspective, my backups are going to go there fine, but how long will it take me to restore? Well, it's going to restore only at one gig. As long as you're aware of that and it's not a big deal, and for me, it's not. If my main video editing system had crashed and I have my videos, which are constantly being backed up over to that other server, I know it's going to take probably eight hours to get my videos back. All I would do is pull the videos that are most important to me. The rest of them are archive. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it takes half an hour to get the videos I want back um, so I can go back to editing and get myself fixed right away in terms of that. But 
the rest of the stuff is just restoring all my archives because uh, it's all second copies and third mm -hmm. copies are all in the cloud. So as long as you have it as part of your plan, it's perfectly fine. Um, now let's talk about some updates to some software mm. and I'm working on a new gray log video. So I've actually thrown in the show notes, a, uh, with gray log and how you can install it with Docker. I've put all this in GitHub. That's where I started. I goofed up something when I was setting up the Git repository. I, I, it's all been solved now. So that, that's available. The code works. I just don't have the video around it with instructions, but if you're good enough to understand how to do Docker compose, Download this, run it. It will install Graylog for you, and you're off and running. It is got it does have notes in it and things like that. Uh, this is going to be for Graylog five. I did this because there's no easy migration from Graylog four to five, which is unfortunate. Um, they are aware of it, but because of the changes I wanted to make, and one of the big ones is going to be instead of using Elastic, I'm using OpenSearch instead because um, there's some licensing confusion that could be a show into itself. The history of Elasticsearch versus OpenSearch. I'm not yeah. here to throw opinions. Uh, go ahead and Google it. Make your own assessments on it. But I'm a little, I'm a little confused by uh, all of what happened. But it sounds like people arguing about software being copied, um, and somehow it almost feels like Amazon is. Um, I can't tell if they're the good guy or the bad guy in this one. Which normally I would default to <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. She's rolling his eyes yeah. about Amazon's the 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 problem, but it's more complex than even that. Um, about licensing usage. Elastic change your licenses. Open search has, an, as I understand it, a more open license. Um, but nonetheless, correct me in the comments if I'm wrong about that or your thoughts on that as a topic. But back to yeah. Graylog, uh, update to MongoDB5, and a lot of cool features. The nice thing I'm going to be doing is explaining it in two ways. One, how to download and set it up, which is all in one VM, which is easy. Second, how to download it and set it up, but then ha have all of the log data, the large part of this, going to an NFS share and why that's a good thing. We and Jay had kind of discussed this uh, over many episodes, and including the last episode, episode 95, we talked about this, of why you really need to have your compute, your application, and your data you know, all segmented out. And this is going to yep. be something I hammered down in this video is showing you how to build it that way. Because... I've seen a lot of people complain about XCPNG where I run things going, but Tom, it feels so limiting having these VMs uh, have this cap of uh, X number, you know, I think it's two terabytes per drive. I'm like, if if you need more than two terabytes per drive mm -hmm. on your virtual machine, you're designing your storage wrong. That's yeah. the least optimal way to do it. Your VM should be small, easily movable around. There's no need to have two terabytes of virtual machine. The virtual machine should boot up and then mount where the larger data volumes are going. And I'll make sure that's very clear in the video. So I'll go over storage design as well to make sure people have a good grasp on that. Yeah, and I think one of the other reasons this came up is because of the Plex server that I, I run that I've mentioned before, where it has a 16 gigabyte disk. And I said gigabyte, not terabyte, 16 gigabyte disk. It might be 32, but either way, it's it's... 32 gigabytes is the maximum, and it's barely using any of that because just like you were saying, the movies are on an NFS share. So if I have to restore my Plex server, I'll just delete it if something breaks, and I'll just recover it from an image, and yep. it'll just sync up whatever movies I might have added since then. But then when I want to transfer that VM from one Proxmox host to the other, it's small. It happens super quick. I don't have to wait for it. It's also easy to back up. And I back up the data separately because that's a lot of stuff. If you have that big of a VM, that's actually kind of kind of crazy, in my opinion. That's that's huge. 
Yeah, not a great idea. Now, the video I released about an hour before this show started was the Unified Dream Machines are now finally getting the Unified Dream Machine Pro, which I know a lot of people probably have. And it's now got WireGuard support if you're running 3.0.20 release candidate. Um, I have the release candidate. I set it up. WireGuard's working. Awesome. Uh, that means I'll, in the future, one, be able to do updated videos because people are asking, what do you think now that it's got it? And I said, no, no, release candidate doesn't really mean has it. But I do know Unify is good. For the time that you have a release candidate, it's generally only a week or two before it goes into full mm. out. So um, it's not like EA early access. It's actually release candidate. So they, the good news is they have it. So for those of you that have bought into that, I mean, going, when do I get my good VPN support? Finally. They after this long road of doing everything weird and Unify just deciding to do VPNs in a way different than other companies for reasons I can't understand. They've decided, oh, I guess companies do it this way because it's easier for the users. Yes, that's why they do it. They didn't really want to use your silly cloud system uh, to do VPNs. Turns out the firewall can do VPN. Why not? We just talk to the firewall. Why do we have to tie it to a cloud to do a VPN? Anyways, rant over uh, because yeah. they're finally fixing it. <laughs> <laughs> probably because they had a conversation internally. Like Tom says, we should do this. I think we should probably do this. He's been asking for a long time. Uh, I'm kidding. Obviously, it's it's useful for everyone. Um, I, I'd I love to try that. Too, show, but so. yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So those the update. Um, other thing that we're talking about here is I want to mention fresh RSS, which I did a tutorial on. And staying focused on the news is hard, but also mm -hmm. something that's very important if you work in technology you want to keep up with the world around you of technology you don't want to be distracted by the shiny things um i did a video on fresh rss i highly recommend it for an rss reader i know jay used to is it tiny rss is that the one you're using tiny tiny rss tiny, yeah. tiny. that's the one i'll be switching away from when i check out your video yeah jay didn't care for that one as much um i'm really happy with fresh rss uh got a lot of good feedback on it i also give people my news feeds uh which are very linux and open source centric along with hacking and uh, tech news in terms of security news to keep up with a lot of that as best I can. And uh, RSS reader is a way to like focus yourself into a single spot. I think fresh RSS, fully open source, fully hostable by you, lightweight, relatively easy to install, has a Docker implementation of it. Uh, I, I just really give it a two thumbs up in terms of uh, ease of use and making my life <laughs> a little more focused, which is, you know, I, I like the shiny thing too, but I want to you know, narrow it down. The only thing I, I still use Twitter because I post on social media, but I did point out something. If you don't want to use Twitter, but you would like to just get feed information from people that you want to follow on Twitter without having to actually go to the site, uh, which will lead you to a array of distractions because whatever's trending is never interesting. Uh, well, I should say never relevant to me, but always going, why is that word trending? Who's doing something stupid? I, I can't resist sometimes, uh, but you can use yeah. a tool called Knitter and then tie it to French RSS and you can grab individuals. I did cover that in my video as well. So uh, it's another way to do that. I didn't look, but I think there's a way you can do that with Mastodon as well. So you, if you don't even want to, but most people Mastodon is nice because they have public feeds, but you should be able to pull those feeds in from Mastodon. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to keep up with people. Social media can be good and bad. If you, it, it depends on how you use it is how I feel. Uh, it, it's a challenge, of course, because their goal is often to, you know, you can complain about them slurping up your data, but they do a good job of keeping on the site by distracting me with things that I want to click on. <laughs> they, they do. They mm -hmm. definitely do. 
Oh, YouTube over RSS. Yes, um, that is that is a cool feature. You don't have to know anything more than a channel name for with fresh RSS. You don't have to like there. There's ways you can find an RSS feed for a channel. There's steps. You can Google it and figure out how to do it. Um, but you can actually just dump channel names right into fresh RSS and it just grabs the channel, puts them all together. That's actually how I subvert the YouTube algorithm to see the things I want to see. Um, mm -hmm. I just throw throw them all in fresh RSS. I can have all, I know which one of my creators have released which videos. I'm like, Hey, look, that's interesting. I don't have to rely on YouTube's algorithm, which may or may not, despite how many times we tell you to click bell icons and subscribe, it may decide that it doesn't want to show you a video. So you can beat the YouTube algorithm uh, on our behalf by using fresh RSS. <laughs> yep, that's a good way to do it. Absolutely. And yeah, that was the reason I wanted to move away from tiny, tiny RSS because it's just not all that easy to add YouTube to it so that's a big fix yeah. that i need really cool the way you add them in there you just grab the channel name drop it in done done just have them uh by the way it creates a nice index you can do search it so if you can't remember because you're like me and you've now subscribed to too many things in fresh rss but you remember there was a topic uh if you tell it and it doesn't take much storage to do this i, I keep a thousand articles from every um site that is fed in there so i keep this rolling thousand article history so i can search through all of the articles and find everyone talking about a specific topic including the youtube people uh, so i can see who's got a video on it who's got this and like it's just kind of a great way to do it so yep yep and i think jay want to talk about some raspberry pi compute modules these things are neat yep. they really are in We've talked about them before, but I think this is more of a refresher, and I want to put it put them back on everyone's radar. I feel like they're starting to take off, um, but they're a little bit more challenging than a Raspberry Pi. And here's the thing: so Raspberry Pi four, you have your network uh, port, you have your you know USB, HDMI, and whatnot. So it's pretty easy just to you know put an SD card in it and you know power it on and use it. Compute modules don't have any of those ports, uh, literally zero. It's just everything but the port and that might, you might think that that makes it unusable, but the idea is you slap them into a, you know, a main board. Um, they have boards that can support one compute, compute module or many, like the Turing Pi 2, you can add four to that one, which is one, you know, my favorite one. And I think that this is a major um, thing for home labbers to consider because the footprint is smaller. You could buy an ATX case, your favorite ATX case, a small one, a mini ATX case. And and buy a board that goes in there and then slot your compute your uh, compute modules in there and it it feel it just seems like a really awesome way to have Raspberry Pi servers without having to deal with you know all these cables all over the place because the compute modules will share the backplane with each other so you'll typically on the board you'll have a you know one network port but it's actually a switch on the inside so they you know each compute module will get an IP address and uh, usually you can hot plug them is usually how that's set up. And also there's single-use devices such as um, the G-Pi, which is a Raspberry Pi compute module case that uh, basically turns it into a handheld Game Boy, you know, with a screen and the buttons and everything. You just put your compute module in there and then you have your own game system. So I just wanted to put this on everyone's radar because it might be confusing to some of you that are beginners. You look at this thing and it's like, how do I use it? There's no ports. Well, you have to buy the board for it. But um, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up too is because there's a uh, document that'll be in the show notes that demystifies purchasing compute modules because this in and of itself is confusing. It's not just, oh, I'll buy a compute module and use it. Like, which one do you want? And there's 
so many different variations. It's it's kind of like mesmerizing. So the different models will have um, basically, well, they'll have onboard storage. Some of them won't. So the light models of the compute module, those are the ones that expect you to have an SD card slot on the board. They don't have onboard storage themselves. More like a normal Raspberry Pi where you have an SD card, but just think of the SD card slot being on the board and not the compute module, but the compute module will need that for the operating system. But the non-light models will have EMMC storage on them. So there's a different way you have to program them. Jeff Gearling has videos on this. Uh, he does a good job explaining how to do this. I like the EMMC because then you have everything built in. But even then, um, there's models that have Wi-Fi, there's models that don't. When it comes to this uh, EMMC version, there's a you know, 8, 16, 32 gig version that you can get. One of the things to keep in mind is most of the time, if not all the time, I'm not too clear on this, but everything I own that uses compute modules, um, if you have an SD card slot and you buy the EMMC version of the onboard storage, they can't use the SD slot. So don't think you're just going to put a you know two terabyte SD cards you know, in the slot and use it. Um, if it's a light one, you can. And I apologize, there's uh, the lawn mowing company is here all of a sudden. So um, yeah, right on time, guys. Um, so anyway, so I just wanted to have this linked in the show notes because it's um, it really kind of makes it easier to know which one you want. Just understand if you buy EMMC, you're using EMMC. If you buy an SD card version, you're using the SD card version. So um that's uh, it'll be de- it'll be easier just to read the document that's in the in the show notes. But I again, I wanted to put this in everyone's radar because they're just awesome. I love these things. Yeah, they are really cool. That uh, that link is in the show notes, and yep. it's um, I I gotta admit, uh, shout out if uh, many of you undoubtedly follow the channel ETA Prime. He talks about a lot of these handheld devices, and some of them are based on the uh, Raspberry Pi uh, compute modules as well. Yep. So definitely yep. things uh, look in there. So I'll just paste it right in there in the chat and uh, we'll have it in the show notes too. So yep. um, I think that just makes it a lot easier. And if you're thinking about setting up a cluster, I think it's a very good uh, solution for that. Because if you have hot plug compute modules, it's like mini server cards and you're just you know slotting them in as you need, which is pretty cool because then you could just have one cable without having to do power over ethernet to every single one. You could just have one network cable, one power cable, and then the rest is handled for you. So yeah. Um I seen this question come up in here and this goes back to two episodes ago. We talked about uh, home assistant and home assistant is great, but the question of Z wave versus Zigbee. Yes. Is the answer. And I threw a link in there. You can find this. It's in the, it's in our previous video about it as well. It's really weird because this is one of those, it's hard to find on the Amazon links, but I'll give you the name of the device, but place it. We have the link in there. It's by Nortec security and control. And it's a Z-Wave plus uh, Zigbee device in one. Uh, I really like this thing because it's one USB that has both protocols. So you can decide what you want. So whatever you're finding a deal on, and you can have both activated at the same time as I do. I have some things that are Z-Wave. I have some things that are Zigbee. And they have no problem because they don't use the same frequency. But the device can control both in your home assistant. You don't have to choose one or the other. Um so that's, I just stood out there. It's one of those things that I really like that stuff. I, I don't think you have much stuff that Z-Wave or Zigbee though, Jay, right? You're just using a lot of Wi-Fi. Yeah, motion sensors are the only thing that uses that. So everything else is going to be the you know, Wi-Fi basically. Yeah, the it's 
it's a nice protocol because you don't have to attach these weird IoT devices or set them up on an IoT VLAN. I have a video coming out on that soon of why I chose to go Zigbee and Z-Wave uh, for things. And mostly comes down to, I don't have any of those weird off-the-wall off switches that I've bought and things like that. They're not attached to any Wi-Fi. You just press the little Z-Wave button on them. And that's not a protocol that routes internet. That's just for these devices to communicate. So there's not any security concern. They're, they're not able to reach out to some controller in the sky. They're not running internet protocol to get out to the internet. They're just local devices pinging for uh, looking for friends. Because uh, yep. it's, it's an interesting protocol because uh, Zigbee and Z-Wave, the other devices all become relay devices in the network. So you, they all automatically do this for you. They create like a larger, most of them do, I should say. There's probably some, a few exceptions out there that don't have this. Most of them have a relaying function in there. So if you have a light switch that is 10 feet away and another light switch that is 20 feet away <clears throat> and another one that's 30 feet away, it'll actually jump between all of them because the one that's 30 feet away, maybe the signal's not good enough, but it's good enough to talk to the other ones. And by building these yep. mesh networks makes it uh, a lot easier. You can dive into, there's a lot of great documentation and people who have videos on that as a topic, just how Zigbee and Z-Wave work. So it's, uh, it's, it's really neat. I think it's a great way to run your uh, home IoT stuff. It's especially good for people that don't like IoT, but they're kind of like, you know, grinding their teeth and just kind of going into IoT as they need to or whatever they need to, to do it for without necessarily being cloud connected, like you were saying, which is probably a benefit for a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't even give IoT the time of day. Well, especially because the firmware problems you can run with things that connect to your Wi-Fi. Um, Jay yeah. ran into that with certain models. And this is mm -hmm. one of the things that can be an aggravation setting up Home Assistant of going, uh, you'll find a module that works in a video. And you're like, hey, the video's from last year. This guy says it works. Oh, oh, it doesn't work this year because the newest model has a firmware that doesn't that requires some cloud registration in order yeah. to work or something like that. Uh, so Z-Wave and Zigbee are ways to avoid those type of rabbit holes of, you know, time. And I think, I think Jay had showed me like there's a firmware, but it requires uh, doing a breakout box and soldering a couple pins or something like that. I'm like, yeah, this seems like a lot of work to get a light switch to work. Or <laughs> It is. Yeah, that is a lot of work. Um, I, I learned that Ikea apparently, and I haven't tested these has, uh, devices that I believe are Zigbee that you could have like a smart switch without installing it into your into your you know actual wiring. It, it just mounts to the wall and it's Wi-Fi, which yep. I, I haven't tried it, but I I think I want to. I think that'd be fun. Well, I'll let you I guys too, know how it goes. There's uh, brand name ones, uh, Honeywell, like you know companies that make regular consumer products. Um, they've gotten into it. Uh, Lutron, I believe, is sold at Lowe's. It's just, you know your a hardware store we have that's nationwide here in the mm -hmm. U.S. So for our non-U.S. listeners, I don't know if they're outside the U.S., but there's at least brands that are regularly sold in stores, not weird one-off brands where you can find these, which is kind of cool. So, yep. Oh, and I'll throw this out there. Um, you, I don't have any problem with Home Assistant being on my secured network. I don't see it as a threat. I, it doesn't, it doesn't itself pose a threat to me, so to speak. Like, could someone take it over because they hacked it? I mean, by default, it has SSH off and things like that. So someone could get into it and mess with my lights. But if it's on my secured network, it's less likely to even be attacked because Home Assistant right. outside of updates, it reaches out to the Internet for updates. It doesn't really need to be externally exposed unless you feel like externally exposing it and not using a VPN. Uh, but the people at, is it Nobu Koso? The, the company that's behind Nobu it. Nobu Casa, I believe. Nobu Casa. 
thing. I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure it's something close. Yeah, to something along. Anyways, the people who actually support the project, uh, they actually have a relay server you can get for external access that comes with SSL and everything else. So um, it's if you want to have it externally accessible, but I don't see any problem with putting it on there. And by mm -hmm. the way, if you set it up, but you're going, well, how does it control the IoT network if it needs to be on that network? Well, you can put in either A, firewall rules so it can reach out to, and this is something I have on mine. There's firewall rules because it can talk to my camera network or specifically um, my Synology can talk to it for webhooks. So my Synology has a one specific port open for one specific reason, and it's to be able to do webhooks. So you can pinhole firewall rules to... Uh, uh, put it all together that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, Navacasa is what someone said. Yeah, it, it's an interesting term. It's, it's probably not something I'll remember uh, until I have to say it a few more times, then I'll get it. Yeah, it's easy to forget. Yeah. <laughs> so it roll off the tongue. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this Dev Random episode. Uh, this was fun. Hopefully, uh, check out some of the videos we have where we dive way deeper in our tutorials um, on those topics. So thank you, everyone who joined us, and we'll see you next week. See you again.